Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Hulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Speak up for all who cannot speak for themselves, for the justice of all who are oppressed. Speak up and judge righteously. Defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. Woe to those who make unjust laws to those who issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of my judgment and withhold my justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. For I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. By justice, a king gives a country stability. But those who are greedy for bribes, tear it down. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. You will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? 
All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and see who has created these stars." the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls on them by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 507 of the Bible as Literature podcast. I saw an example on the cable news network that is worth talking about. There was a woman, a doctor, who serves with this beautiful organization, Doctors Without Borders. She was explaining what happened to her in Gaza. She was talking about 
what to my ears sounded like the zombie apocalypse about children packed in close quarters in refugee camps, about bombs falling on all sides. By now we know from reports that it's the equivalent of several atomic bombs in a confined area. About there being no water or fuel, about hospitals essentially functioning like morgues. About children covered with burns and there being no way to minister to them. And she explained something that many of us are familiar with, which is the, at least what's perceived in Europe and the United States as a kind of extreme hospitality. I don't like to describe it that way. I like to describe it as normal life because life in the West, from my perspective, is abnormal. But she experienced normal life, which is the way humans have lived for such a long time before the rise of colonialism. And in that setting, the Palestinian aid workers, the medical workers that were a part of her staff, a part of her team, she mentioned one individual in particular, did what these people do. They tapped their personal network to make sure that she would get to the Rafa crossing and that she would be kept alive until she got there. In a place where there was no water, they used their network to find her bottled water. They used their network to get her just enough food to have at least 700 calories a day. And the person who was ensuring her safety got her out of Palestine while his own parents, his own family was killed. And he got up the next day and continued to work with Doctors Without Borders to try to take care of whoever needed care in the country. And she left knowing that the American workers who stayed behind were choosing to die. She left knowing that this person showed her hospitality at the expense of his own tribe, his own family. And hearing her talk, I understood that the word shame could not describe or measure the depth of her wound 
it was not a big enough word to quantify her pain or allow her to bear witness to a crucifixion. Now, when I hear Americans talk about their travel abroad as tourists, and they brag about how nice people are in the global south, how much hospitality they show, it's disgusting. Because their frame of reference is themselves. But this man, this worker, this man who is serving inside Gaza with Doctors Without Borders, isn't showing hospitality towards someone leaving his country because he's nice or because he wants something from her. He's not showing hospitality because it feels good. He's doing so because of duty, not towards the community, but towards his parents who were erased. He's doing so out of duty towards the tribe. He's not doing it because it makes him feel good. He's doing it because it must be done. This situation that I'm describing is exactly what the liturgy is. This woman bore witness to a Eucharistic fellowship. She bore witness to a crucifixion, and now she walks out of the church to bear witness to that shame, to proclaim the death of Christ. If you can understand your participation in the Eucharist on this level, then you've learned something. If you can understand what it means to show hospitality in a way that is not self-referential, that is not about growing your church or building your church or trying to achieve something selfish while everything around you is turning to rubble and everyone you love is disappearing, then maybe you can hear what it means to proclaim the death of Jesus Christ then maybe you understand what it means when Scripture is proclaiming there is no we in community. There is only the I of the shepherd, I as in the letter I, the Shebet. There is only the voice of the shepherd. This pains me to say because I am a stubborn Palestinian, I want to resist by simply existing. But that's not what Scripture teaches. What Scripture teaches us 
is to let them push us into Sinai. That's what scripture teaches. That's literally the story. So that we can dwell in tents, so that only God is our shelter. That's what scripture teaches. So anyways, I give thanks to God for Doctors Without Borders. And I ask everyone who hears this podcast who prays to pray for that woman, that beautiful woman, and to pray for her colleague who's still serving in the Middle East. This is something that one does out of duty, and it's not about the respect for an individual. In fact, Scripture says that the judge is not allowed to appreciate one individual over another individual. It doesn't have to do with that. It has to do with one's duty to uphold the community. That's what the judge is supposed to be doing. That's why the king, the judge, the father, these are all the same character. They're all the same personality. I remember when I was in Lebanon and when I was teaching at Balaman, I was always amazed at how respectful the students were. They never walked through a door in front of me. If they noticed I was coming, they'd step out of the way and they'd open the door for me because I was both a professor and a guest. So they had no choice. It wasn't because they liked me. It wasn't because they were scoring some kind of points with me. Some of these weren't even my students. They're just other students at the seminary. And I was talking to Father Paul about it when he came to visit at Balaman. I'm like, my colleagues, the professors, were at one time students there, so they had to open doors for other people. Now other people are opening doors for them. And I said, I didn't put in my time. Then at lunch the next day, Father Paul was eating, and he said, I didn't get enough tomatoes. And he shoved his plate at me. Because I had to be reminded that when the professor doesn't have enough tomatoes, it's my duty to make sure he has enough tomatoes. I don't even know if he ate the tomatoes. <laughs> That's not the point. The point is that he gave me one lesson that these other professors had lived years to learn. I just got a tiny piece of it. When I was living in Ukraine, the level of hospitality that was shown me was incredible when I stopped to think about it. Unfortunately, I didn't stop to think about it for 20 years because I was a young whippersnapper in my 20s thinking everything I got, I deserved. And people would have me over for lunch, for dinner all the time. And I didn't realize what they were sacrificing in order for me to have a meal. When salaries were 20 to $40 a month, they would have a table full of food that they bought. I don't know where they bought it. I don't know how much it costs. I don't know. They could have taken out loans. I don't know. But if they spent $100 on a month, I think of what that would mean for me if I spent two, two and a half months of salary on a single meal for a single guest, what that would be like. And we're starting to talk about like a wedding reception. And it wasn't because they think that, you know, Richard Benton, the up-and-coming biblical scholar, we need to make sure that he has a nice meal and he's impressed with us. No. They assumed I was going to forget about them altogether, but they knew that they did their duty. When you have a foreigner coming into town, you do the right thing. 
It was about doing the right thing, and it took me a long time. So the shame that this woman bears, I have a slight sliver of that shame in knowing how I was treated and knowing what I experience in my day-to-day life living here in the United States and seeing what's around me. And when you talk about the liturgy, I mean, when I think of what these families sacrificed in order for that meal to be laid out, what sacrifices were made so that the Eucharistic table could be laid out? The ultimate sacrifice was laid out, and it wasn't for me. It wasn't for Dr. Richard Benton, you know, so he stays spiritually nourished, like some people talk this kind of nonsense. It's because I am offered a place at this table, and I get to see what grace means. Grace means that it doesn't matter who I am, but that the table is laid with the brokenness of this family and the sacrifice of this family. And that's humbling. It's humbling when one comes into it, and that's only the beginning. It's the one bowl of tomatoes that I got my professor. So when Jesus is coming to Peter, to Simon, they understand this dynamic in a way that we don't. You and I, Father, we talk about entering into this world of Scripture and the customs and language that they have in this foreign world. We have to understand that Jesus and Simon knew this dynamic in their bones, and we don't understand it in our bones. So as we approach Jesus, who leaves the crowds, leaves the people, leaves the city, leaves the civilization, and heads towards the deep, which Jonah was crying out to just please let me out of the deep, Jesus is heading into the deep on purpose with these marginalized people, the fishermen, not because he has a soft spot in his heart for fishermen, but because it's his duty to go to the marginalized in the middle of the deep in order to share his teaching. It is not because Simon is cute. I don't think he's very cute. It's because Jesus had a duty that was given to him by his father, and this is what he's bound to carry out. Simon answered and said, Master, we have worked hard all night and caught nothing but I will do as you say and let down the nets. This word master relates very much to this conversation that we're having, Rich. And I once again did a little word study, and I was struck by what I discovered because it connects to something that I observed about a different term when I was doing my work for Dark Sayings. There I discovered a very interesting connection between the word shakat in Hebrew, which means to give peace, to keep the peace, and sakata in Arabic, which means to fall, to lose worth, to decline, and to collapse. The connection there was in Colossians chapter 4, because Paul in Colossians famously is telling the Kyrios, that you, lords, remember that you have a lord. So he's telling the one who fancies himself that he's in charge of the household, you're nothing. Your headship 
as the one holding the Shebet, which is where we started this conversation, that the one who is letting his own relatives, his own parents perish so that he can perform his duty towards the Shebet to safeguard the life of the outsider and get her to the Rafa crossing. This one who's showing duty towards the Shebet, we are all being reminded that the person who holds the Shebet in that community, to whom he is showing deference, this one is nothing. This one who holds the Shebet is an earthen vessel. Paul teaches thus that he is an earthen vessel. The Shebet remains because the Shebet is our reference point for the teaching. It is the teaching that abides. That's why it is the eye of the teaching, but the teaching must be wielded by an earthen vessel. This is the part that Westerners hate because they don't want to submit, so they want to say it's the we of community, and then you have a big community meeting in which everyone raises their hand to listen to the sound of their own voice, and that's why bombs consistently fall. That's the problem. In the meantime, someone who doesn't raise his hand to hear his own voice escorts someone safely to the border, even if it is at his own expense. That's community. And everybody has to hear it because that is why people are sad in the West because it doesn't happen here anymore. It does on rare occasions, but it's all but disappeared in public life. This connection between keeping the peace and losing worth, which surfaces in the relationship between the biblical Hebrew and the Arabic cognate, also appears when you look at the Hebrew that corresponds via the Septuagint with the Greek epistatis, which is the word for master here. The word, which is pakid in Hebrew, the triliteral PQD, what I'm going to do, Richard, just to make things easier as a rule, is use the Latin letters. I mentioned this last episode because it just translates easily in people's ears as we do the work. The triliteral in Hebrew means master or ruler. And that's how this Greek term is used frequently in the Septuagint in order to render the original triliteral PQD from the Hebrew consonantal text. Now, it corresponds to an Arabic triliteral, FQD, the Q representing the cough, that sound that's difficult for people to pronounce, in which you close the back of your throat, uh, sound, the famous Middle Eastern sound, Semitic sound, which carries a different meaning, which is why people often don't connect the Arabic with the Hebrew. But it struck me because it's very similar to shakat and sakata. Because on the one hand, in Hebrew, you have this implication of a master and a ruler. But in the Arabic, it means to miss, to lose, or to lack something. So once again, you have two cases where on the one hand, it refers to exercising strength. And on the other hand, it corresponds to losing or lacking. 
So, for example, in Arabic you have faqada, which means to lose, to miss. Mafqud, which means literally lost, something is lost or missing. I just want to point this out, Rich, both in terms of what may be something interesting in the Semitic languages that provides some insight. That's a claim that I make in my book regarding the first example, because scripture invalidates the one hearing the text. Because ultimately, the point that I'm making in the book is that Jesus, although he's made to stand out as a reference, and we refer to him as Lord and Master, in his function as the locum tenens, loses value and loses worth. So I think that there's something going on here in the language, Rich. That's the first thing I wanted to point out. The only other point that I wanted to make along the lines of this constant emphasis on the interconnection between Hebrew and Arabic, which is as urgent right now as the kinship between Russians and Ukrainians. We must not forget the suffering of the Ukrainian and the Russian people either. But you have this word here, niktos, which means night in Greek. It obviously corresponds to the word lael, leila, which is the name of my second child. It's the same word in Arabic. It means night. When you begin to hear over and over and over and over again, the abundance of terminology in the Hebrew and the Arabic that are interconnected directly or indirectly, you begin to understand the importance of the Arabic language and its value along with the other Semitic languages, but also the stupidity of the colonial propaganda that tries to frame Arabs as being anti-Semitic. The Arabs have always been the best friend of the Jewish people and still are the best friends of the Jewish people. And we all need to remember that because during this dark night and when the dust settles, we have to still be the best friend of the Jewish people for our sake and theirs. When it comes to obedience to duty, Luke himself makes an interesting move. This word that you brought up, Father, epistatis, it's only used in the New Testament in the Gospel of Luke. Half the time it's used is by Peter when he's speaking to Jesus. The only other times it's used is one time by John when he's speaking to Jesus, and another time by the lepers that were healed, they use this word. And it is a ruler, but it's it's used in specific instances in the Septuagint. The first instances we find it is talking about the overseers of the Jewish slaves. Then we see it later on in Kings, especially, about the overseer of soldiers, of an army. It is this martial duty, this martial leader over slaves and over soldiers. That's what this person is, an epistatis. In the equivalent places in other Gospels, they tend to use didaskalos, teacher, instead of epistatis. So what is Luke trying to do by bringing up this word? Peter 
sees this guy getting onto his boat who's been teaching in the Galilee, and he's addressing him not as a teacher or the lord of a manor like a, a landowner, but as a taskmaster, as a general, someone who truly owns your behind. He was not told by Jesus that this is how you need to address me. But it's not a teacher. It's not a landowner. This is an active ruler who is telling you, put this foot in front of that foot in this spot. That's what a slave driver does, a literal slave driver does, and this is what a general over an army does. It's different than a teacher. The teaching is much more practical. Let's put it that way. And that's exactly how Peter acts. Well, I don't see any point in doing this, but you told me to do it, so I'm doing it right now. I even have data that shows that this won't work, but you said to do it, and I'll do it. This is how Peter begins. Peter, in the book of Luke, starts off as somebody who is willing to submit to a taskmaster, a true taskmaster, a literal taskmaster, an epistatis. So Luke chooses a particular word in Greek to drive this point home in a way that the other Gospels don't. So as we go through and read the book of Luke, let's keep this in mind. Luke does not present Jesus as a teacher or a great man or the inheritor, like Matthew is all about, the inheritor of the kingdom of heaven, right? We talk about kingdom of heaven all the time through Matthew. Here, we have an epistatis. We have a slave driver. We have a taskmaster. This is who Peter sees in front of him, which is very different than what the people in Galilee saw. The people in Galilee wanted to have a discussion. They tried to press him to do this or to do that or heal this person or say that thing or go to this place or leave that place. For Peter, he is a slave and Jesus is his master. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. I want to zero in, Rich, on the word plethos, which corresponds in the Septuagint to the word rub, which means quantity. Now, why does this word jump out at me? Because the triliteral, RBB, is a big deal in Arabic. It occurs... 980 times in the Quran. And anybody who's been to the liturgy in the Arabic language has heard it quite a few times because we say, Lord, have mercy an awful lot in the Greek church. Rub in Arabic means Lord, Master, Kyrios. In the Quran, it's used to refer to Allah all the time, interchangeably, 980 times in one form or another pertaining to God. That's how we say, Lord, have mercy, Ya Rabburham in Arabic. So it's striking that the same word in Hebrew can mean abundance or majority, or here obviously it corresponds to plethos, which means a quantity. Poli plethos, a great quantity. But what's interesting about the Arabic 
is that it can also refer to an increase in knowledge. It can be used to describe a growth of knowledge or wisdom or understanding. Rabba ilma. He increased his knowledge. What I find interesting is that the increase in knowledge pertains, obviously, to the master. Because here we're talking about enclosing a great quantity of fish. For what purpose? Not to grow the size of the church, which is how we speak when our reference is different than the reference of this beautiful man who took care of this beautiful woman who risked her life to take care of these kids in the refugee camp that was being shelled. His reference was the Shebet of Gaza. It was not the growth of his tribe. He took care of her while his tribe was being erased. And he did not take care of her so that his tribe would benefit because she was leaving. His reference was the staff of the shepherd. It doesn't matter what religion or no religion he has. It doesn't matter what his religion is or whether he has any religion. We're talking about function. His duty was toward the unseen God. It doesn't matter what he believes. It matters how he conducts himself for Christ's sake. Whoever you are, I know what you're thinking. Stop it. You think like a capitalist when you think that way. That's your problem. You don't hear scripture. And that's why you can't hear what Simon is supposed to be doing here. He's not catching fish to fill his building. His function is so that knowledge of the instruction will increase according to the book of Acts. This is Luke, the author of Acts. That's why, Rich, I find this example in the Arabic, Rabba Ilma, very interesting, especially because the same root refers to the master, Yarab. To increase in knowledge is to increase in the Lord. So is the community increasing when you fill the net with fish, or is the Lord increasing? It is not the we, it is the I, it is the Shebet that increases. It is a different way of thinking. It is a challenge. It is a challenge. Do we assemble to hear ourselves talk? Or do we assemble to hear the voice of the Lord? Right now, there are people who desperately, desperately need us to hear the voice of the Lord. The connection, of course, between the Arabic and Hebrew of this word rabbi is imperative to understand because Jews also refer to the leader of their community and their chief teacher as rabbi, which we say in English is the rabbi. We have this connection in just the way that people talk. I mean, even people who don't know the origins of the word, this is how you refer to this person. With that understanding of the root and what this means, we see the connection between the communities. Here we have in Greek the plethos, and the plethos that Peter is 
collecting here is from the word pliro, which is the fullness. He has a fullness of fish. Now, in this point of the story, Peter's just a fisherman. Somehow he gathered that this person is more than just a teacher, that this is something he must follow lockstep with. But he's just a fisherman. He's earning his living. But he's the head of the ship. He's the head of his family. And so by collecting fish, he's providing for his family. This is a very mundane task that he's performing right now. That's why Jesus later on has to explain to him that this is more than just catching fish for dinner. When he brings in these fish, for now, it's to keep his tribe going. They need to eat, very simply. And when they don't catch anything after three days, they're hungry because they're living off this too. Jesus is making sure that Peter is able to safely provide for his people and for his shebet. This is what Jesus does by sacrificing any kind of benefit he may be getting from being on the land and in the city and in the crowds, even in the Galilee, and he heads to the bottomless pit, the bathos, the abyss with Peter. This is where he's going. He's going to the abyss with Peter so that Peter can provide for his family. But Jesus is going to explain later on, it's much more than that. Yes, the nets are full, and you think they're full so that your family is healthy. But I'm telling you, this is about way more than your family, Peter. And as long as Peter stays true to his word of calling him the epistatis, Peter will fall into line. We know Peter's going to fall out of line plenty later on. But Peter understands his duty. As much as we want to criticize Peter, he knew his duty. He failed in his duty, but he knew his duty. And as you say, Father, that people must hear this, the people whom we're preaching to are not the ones who failed in their duty. We're preaching to the ones who don't even realize they had a duty. Father Paul reminded me, taught me that I had a duty when he shoved his plate at me. I didn't even know I was forgetting my duty to get him more tomatoes. And by giving me that, it was more than just making sure that his bowl was full so that his belly would be full. That was not what he was doing. He was making sure that my brain was full with what needed to happen. It was more than tomatoes. And for Peter, it's more than fish. It's about this teaching, this teaching of duty that one has that when used correctly, brings even shame to the one receiving it. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.